Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession today is Proverbs chapter 30, verse 14. It reads, There are those whose teeth are swords, whose fangs are knives, to devour the poor from off the earth, the needy from among mankind. We are now at the last of four Proverbs in this chapter, which identify particular groups of people and their particular sin. And again, each of these begin with, there are those. Here identified are people who take advantage of others and oppress them, especially those who are relatively weak and unable to help themselves. John 12, 8 reminds us that poverty is a given in our world. Christ himself says, for the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. But as this proverb states, the poor are not to be taken advantage of. The world and its culture in which we live and breathe, it embodies us, it shapes us. However, we have opportunity and even obligation to influence it. As our influences allow us, we must own the sins of aggression, of violent treatment of the poor and the needy, from abortion to opposing and oppressing employees, to taking advantage of spouses, to harshly crushing the spirits of children, to excessive taxation of the poor, in paying less or charging more than fairness indicates, to callously ignoring those who are in need and in poverty. I'm not saying that you and I are guilty of all these sins of our culture, but we own what the Holy Spirit convicts us of, and we should seek to restore the brokenness which is within our ability to restore. Godly men are merciful men. Matthew 5, 7 says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. It is the pure religion of Jesus Christ to consider the poor and to visit the orphan and the widows in their affliction. Regardless of our current economic status, God's mercy and cares for those who put their trust in him. His mercy is everlasting, and you can trust him for forgiveness of every imaginable sin. Though he has power to condemn and punish, he will forgive those who confess their sins and turn to him. So I invite you now to kneel where you are if you're willing to kneel. Greetings from Christ Covenant Church of Chicago and from everyone there. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's a pleasure to be with you this morning and a privilege to be laboring in the Word with you. Now today is the sixth Lord's Day of Easter, and we are fast approaching Pentecost. As most of you know, the season of Easter begins on Resurrection Sunday, but it continues for another 50 days, counting down from the Sabbath of Passover to the Feast of Weeks, which we know as Pentecost. Now, 
Over these Sundays, in between Easter and Pentecost, we remember the teachings of our Lord to the disciples as he prepared them for the coming of the Holy Spirit. So as we await the coming of Pentecost, I thought it might be appropriate to start at the beginning of the book of Acts, especially since Acts opens with the ascension of the Lord, and this Thursday will be the Ascension Day in the church calendar. Now, as we heard in our reading this morning, the book of Acts opens with a prologue addressed to Theophilus, the lover of God. We don't know for sure whether Theophilus is a particular person or whether Luke is perhaps addressing any reader that he wishes to introduce to the love of God. But we know that the book of Acts is part two. Luke opens with the words, In the first account, O lover of God, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do. This tells us that in Acts, what we might call Luke part two, he is going to tell us the story of what Jesus continues to do. But first, we have a little bit of a recap in the beginning of this second part. Acts tells us that Jesus presented himself alive to the disciples, to the apostles, by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. This is a brief summary of the way the Gospel of Luke concluded, but it isn't just an abbreviated summary. These two short parallel accounts complement each other and teach us new things when they're taken together. In Luke 24... As we read, Jesus said to the disciples, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. In Acts, Luke simply calls this message the kingdom of God. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, says Jesus. The kingdom of God, which is now being realized with Jesus as king, is the fulfillment and culmination of all the Torah and the prophets and the Psalms. This is what the entire history, since the moment moment of creation, has been looking forward to. In what form does the kingdom take? Christ suffers. He dies. He rises on the third day from the dead. Repentance and forgiveness of sins is proclaimed in his name. The message is the same after the resurrection as it was before. But now it is proclaimed in victory. This gospel of the kingdom is what Jesus teaches to his disciples in the last days before he leaves them. So we really have to read the whole book of Acts with this in mind. In the beginning of Acts, this kingdom is already realized and present. Jesus, but Jesus is still teaching them about it because it has not yet been brought to its completion. That completion is the work that Jesus lays before his disciples. Or rather, this is the work that Jesus has yet to do through them by his Holy Spirit. So if the Gospel of Luke tells us about the laying of the very foundation of the kingdom, 
the book of Acts is all about the building up of that kingdom through the church. Now, Jesus' disciples, his followers, must become apostles, his sent ones. But before that can happen, they must be properly equipped. A soldier can't go charging into battle without first ensuring that all his gear is in order and all strategies have been laid out. In the same way, the apostles can't embark on their mission before they're ready. So Jesus tells them, for now, just wait. Go to Jerusalem and stay there. You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit before many days have passed. The work of the kingdom is not something they can do alone. And with Jesus now preparing to take his leave of them for a time, they must have another in his place. You remember that John the baptizer declared he was baptizing with water, but Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Throughout the training of the disciples, Jesus continually promised them that he would send the Spirit, which, he would, get, which would give them discernment, comfort, and power. And the Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus at his baptism is the assurance that all those in him will receive the same spirit, together with the adoption of sons well-pleasing to the Father. Now, having received this promise, once again, here comes a characteristic question of Jesus' disciples. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? The question appears as a response and perhaps a contrast to what we have just heard. Jesus has been teaching them about the kingdom of God, and the disciples now ask whether the Spirit will inaugurate the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. And the answer Jesus gives his disciples is, first, a very mild admonishment. It's not for them to know the times and seasons. Jesus said something similar once before on this very same mountain on Olivet about the coming of the Son of Man. He said, concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son of Man, but the Father only. And although that may, that may make it sound like it could be tomorrow or maybe thousands of years from now, we may also remember that Jesus told them, Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So the disciples are not wrong to be expectant. What they seek is coming, and it is coming soon. But it is not for them to know the exact day or hour. The time of fulfillment is fixed by the Father. And besides the timing, the restoration of the kingdom of Israel will not look like the disciples expect it to look. It doesn't come with the son of David sitting on an earthly throne, ruling from a palace in Jerusalem. Instead, it comes through the passing away of the old covenant, types and shadows, and the vindication of the church as the people of God before the whole world. The disciples are still looking for a return of Israel to its former greatness, they're focused on national Israel and this land of Judea. They're hoping to see again the days of David and Solomon. With the resurrection of the king, they can almost taste it. 
how thrilling that excitement must be to them. But here, Jesus tells them that their vision is too small. Before the Spirit comes, the disciples are still seeing things like children. They're kind of like a four-year-old boy whose parents take him house hunting. And after they've explored this 7,000-square-foot mansion, the boy says to his father, Daddy, I like it. Can we buy the treehouse in the backyard? So Jesus proceeds to broaden their perspective. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And yes, this is the promise of the restoration of the kingdom of Israel, but Jerusalem and Judea isn't all there is. As the mission of the apostles is carried out, we see that they work in anticipation of something that is imminent for them, something that is about to happen. In Romans 13 we read, Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. Again, in 1 Corinthians 7, This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. The apostles' ministry is marked by the knowledge that a great restoration is about to take place, not only of Judea, but of the world, and they live in that expectation. The scope of Jesus' answer teaches us that the very, about the very nature of the kingdom of God. The fact that Jesus chose 12 apostles and not 10 or 14 is not accidental. It isn't as if Jesus picked 10 and then a couple of brothers joined and Jesus said, yeah, well, I guess that's fine, welcome aboard. The disciples haven't completely missed the significance of their number. In fact, they have the right idea. They see 12 apostles for 12 tribes of Israel. They realize that it's not accidental that Jesus sent out 70 disciples to the cities of Judea during his ministry, symbolically appointing new elders over Israel, just as Moses appointed the 70 in the book of Numbers. In fact, Jesus has promised his disciples that in the new creation, in the regeneration, the 12 apostles will sit on 12 thrones and judge the 12 tribes of Israel. But God's kingdom is not just about Israel. It includes Israel, and all the promises of the covenant will certainly be fulfilled in this new assembly, this church built on the foundation of 12 new patriarchs. But Christ... In Christ, the boundaries of the kingdom have been demolished. Now, not only does Yahweh claim Israel for his own, but he claims the entire world. As Matthew 28 tells us, the nations are to be made disciples of Jesus Christ. For this purpose, Jesus tells his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. But this power from the Spirit isn't like the power of the world to go out and conquer by military might. No, he says, you will receive power and you will be my witnesses. In Greek, you will be my martyrs. And most of them will be his martyrs. 
in the way we usually understand the word. They will die for the name of Christ. And in this way, Jesus maps out the strategy for conquest. Not by sword and violence of war, but by martyrdom. They will start in Jerusalem, where he has instructed them to go and wait. From there, they will sweep through all of Judea. They will advance on the countryside of Samaria, and then they will march to the end of the earth. We must not think that this kingdom is less than the former because it does not set itself up with earthly thrones and political power. Rather, it is more glorious because it is the culmination and fulfillment of all that has come before. History has been building up to this point. The prophets have given us hints, and Jesus himself has been the vanguard, the first to advance, ministering to the Jews, to the Samaritans, and even to the Gentiles. Now the church is to follow his footsteps. Our text tells us that after Jesus said these things, he was lifted up and a cloud took him from their sight. Luke is actually the only gospel writer to describe the ascension of Jesus, and he does so twice, once at the end of the gospel account and now here in the beginning of the book of Acts. The ascension of Jesus is the hinge upon which these two accounts turn. In Acts, Luke adds that Jesus was taken up in the cloud. And that's an interesting detail, isn't it? The cloud took him up from their sight. Have you ever thought what the point is of telling us that? What should it remind us of? Well, for the disciples, it probably called to mind their most recent encounter with a cloud at the transfiguration of Jesus. The voice of the Father spoke from the cloud, declaring Jesus his son and chosen one. Later, Jesus tells his disciples that they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with great power and glory. But the cloud isn't only in the gospel accounts. Yahweh, the God of Israel, resides in the cloud, and he comes down among his people in the pillar of cloud. In Exodus 19, as all of Israel prepares to hear the voice of Yahweh, God tells Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. And in the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. The God who spoke from the cloud at the transfiguration of Jesus, has been speaking from that cloud since Sinai. Exodus 24 tells us that Moses entered the cloud when he ascended the mountain to meet Yahweh. And when Daniel describes one like the Son of Man going up to the Ancient of Days, that one is riding the cloud. Throughout the scripture, the cloud is the glory of God and the sign of his presence. I want you to remember in Genesis 2, God planted the Garden of Eden to be the place where he would meet with man. And even after the fall, after Adam and Eve were driven from the garden, 
that garden sanctuary was still there. So if you were going to come before God, you would carry your offering to the gate of Eden, like Cain and Abel did, where the cherubim and the flaming sword were guarding the way to God's presence. But after the flood, God's presence in Eden was removed from the face of the earth. And God's covenant signed to Noah was his bow placed in the clouds. This is a really good visual aid today. I was like, wow. <laughs> Perfect. God's presence was now up there and not at a gate that you could approach. In this remade world, those who worshipped Yahweh now had to bring a new kind of offering. So Noah is the first that is said to bring the offering called Olah. And most translations call this the burnt offering, or whole burnt offering. But that's actually a very poor translation. Olah doesn't mean to offer, and it doesn't mean to burn. It means to go up, to ascend. Because through this offering, the worshiper symbolically ascended to the presence of God. We read from Leviticus 1 earlier, but I want you to listen to it again with this in mind, and I'm going to replace some of these words. If this offering is an ascension from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance to the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before Yahweh. He shall lay his hand on the head of the ascension, and, he shall, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. And he shall kill the bull before Yahweh. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the ascension and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons and the priests shall arrange the pieces, the head, the fat, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar, but its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as an ascension, a food offering, the pleasing aroma to Yahweh. You see, sinful people cannot come before God without a sacrificial representative. So when an Israelite brings an ascension offering, he lays his head on the animal, identifying with his representative. And that animal is killed, and its blood covers the altar, and it's cut into pieces, washed, and finally consumed with fire through which it ascends to Yahweh's presence in a cloud of fragrant smoke. And so the worshiper enters into Yahweh's presence in the cloud of that ascension offering. In the same way, Jesus is our representative. All the ascensions of the Old Covenant, beginning with the one offered by Noah, have anticipated and pointed to Christ. Jesus identified with his people in his baptism. He was slain for sin, and having been raised from the dead, he now ascends to heaven in a cloud. From there, he promises the disciples he will send the Holy Spirit, who will come in the form of tongues of fire, uniting the church to him in the presence of the Father. Jesus ascends so that we might follow. But not only do we look forward to a day when we will be caught up to meet him in the air, but we follow him there, now, 
Indeed, we've already followed him there through the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 2 tells us, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have, grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. God has seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. We are reminded of this every Lord's Day in worship. The word of God, like a sword, cuts us into pieces in the recitation of the law, like a knife cuts apart the offering. And having received the washing of forgiveness, we're called to lift up our hearts to heaven. You don't have it in your liturgy, but in some liturgies, there is a place in the liturgy where you're told to lift up your hearts, and you respond, our hearts are with the Lord. And there we worship in spirit and truth, sitting in the presence of Christ, being instructed by his word, eating and drinking at his table that he has set for us. That is what is meant for us to be seated in heavenly places now, to have ascended with him to the presence of the Father. Finally, as Jesus is taken out of their sight, the disciples stand gazing into heaven where they last saw him. They must feel a little bit lost. Their master has gone away, and the comforter that he had promised has not yet come. And so Jesus sends two messengers to urge them on their way. Men of Galilee, why are you standing here gazing into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way that you saw him go. Jesus is going to return in the same way he went up, bodily, in a cloud of glory, for all to see as they look up into heaven. We wait for that day with great hope. And we anticipate it when we say with the Spirit, even so, come Lord Jesus. In the meantime, we have work to do, just as the apostles did. We're called to be Christ's witnesses. Like the apostles, we must start here, where we are now. Just like they began, just like they were instructed to begin in Jerusalem. But we must not let our vision be too small. Jesus claims the nations for his kingdom, even to the end of the earth. And just as Jesus is our representative in heaven, we are his representatives, his witnesses, his martyrs in the world. What he does, the church is to do as well. Since Jesus is the one who lays down his life for the sheep, we must lay down our lives for one another. Because we see him interceding for us, we must intercede for the world. Because Christ judges and rules, the church is to teach the nations to obey all that Christ has commanded. May God grant us the power to do all this through the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, who has ascended to your right hand in glory. We give thanks for the Holy Spirit, who you sent to empower your servants to do the work entrusted to them. Continue to strengthen your church by your spirit, we pray 
that we might carry out the work of the kingdom and be the faithful witness of Christ to the world. We ask this in the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, praying as he taught us to pray. saved through the flood. The earth had dried up and the ark was unloaded. Noah built an ark, I'm sorry, built an altar to God. And there, this ties together with the, uh, the Levit Leviticus uh, readings that uh, Chris had read, that Noah sacrificed to God some of the every clean animal and every clean bird. And in fact, Genesis 8 says that the smell of those offerings were a pleasing aroma or a sweet savor to the Lord. So if the Lord received Noah's offering, how much more will he receive ours? We offer him the only perfect and permanent sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And in Jesus, we offer the sacrifice of praise. Our prayers ascended to heaven, where our Father receives him as a sweet-smelling aroma, and he is pleased with us. And then when we come to this meal, it's a meal of thanksgiving, where we remember the Lord's kindness to us in Jesus and thank offerings to him, and the Lord gladly receives a humble and a thankful heart, as it is a pleasing aroma to him. So come, welcome to this table that he has prepared for us. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.